Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. Uh, Stratty and I are back and we are here with a very, very special guest. This is someone I've really been excited to get on the show and talk with. Uh, we're here with Mr. Joe Becker uh, from the Mises Institute. Mr. Becker got his undergrad from uh, Troy State University Europe when he was in the Air Force. He got a master's degree in economics from uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where he studied with Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe. And he got his uh, Juris Doctorate degree from North Illinois University. Uh, so Mr. Becker, thank you so much for taking the time today. Hey, thanks for your interest in my work. So uh, I want to start off with uh, just a little bit about yourself, because to, uh, to be totally honest, I had never heard about you before I met you in Birmingham this last summer. And once I learned a little bit more about who you were, I kind of felt like a chump because I was just like, you've been in this movement for a long time and you have some really great work. So uh, just for our listeners who might not know who you are, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you kind of got involved in this thing we call the Liberty Movement? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, don't beat yourself up for not knowing who I am. I mean, I've, I've sort of worked behind the scenes to, to a large extent. Um, I guess the Liberty Movement for me began, you know, all the way back in high school in North Dakota, where I grew up. My parents were both Air Force and uh, we wound up in North Dakota, much to the chagrin of most people who end up there. Um, but in, in any event, uh, I, had, I took a present day politics class from a liberal, a not classical liberal, but a modern liberal uh, teacher. Uh, and I got really interested in politics and economics, even at that early stage. I kind of wanted to do that career wise, but my parents, because I'd done well in an electronics uh, vocational class, at the time, my parents insisted that the future was somehow in electronics. Why were they wrong, huh? Uh, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I wound up eventually going into the Air Force and doing most of my undergraduate work uh, as a way to sort of pay for my school. And, and well, they didn't have an economics degree because there, there wasn't enough economics for a, ma for a major. But I got an undergraduate degree in social science. I, I took 21 hours of undergraduate econ and I took every econ class I could that was available. And then I wound up, you know, graduating with the, the bachelor's in social science with a very heavy emphasis in econ. Despite 21 hours of undergraduate econ, I never was exposed once to the Austrian school, despite having, you know, a, a couple of fairly free market economics instructors. So um, I, I guess what turned me on to Austrian econ and sort of defined the rest of my career path was a good friend of mine who's now, uh, who's no longer living, drug me to a libertarian campaign training um, event during Ron Paul's 1988 campaign for president on the libertarian ticket. Uh, once introduced to Ron, he, he introduced me to Murray Rothbard's Four New Liberty book which I was very impressed with. And I went to my first Mises University um, in 1988, went back when it was still at Stanford. I was so excited about what I learned that I wound up doing my master's work at UNLV with Hans and Hans Hoppe and Murray. And then uh, I went to law school, mostly in Illinois because uh, there were no law schools in Nevada and Illinois had a, become a become a resident for in-state tuition, even while you're a full-time student. That was one of the few states that would allow me to do that. So uh, my family was originally, all, my parents were originally both from the Chicago area as well. So I got to know cousins and aunts and uncles that I'd met that didn't know very well. So that all worked out fairly well. Um, I guess that's sort of how, how I started and got myself through undergrad, graduate and law school. Great. So uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your master's thesis, uh, because I believe it was you did a Austrian economics analysis of a Kilo versus New London case. Is that correct? No, I went to I, went, I did my you're close. Um, I did an Austrian critique of a different case. OK, um, Kilo is a takings case, a physical takings case. I did it on uh, Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Commission which is a regulatory takings case. Um, in retrospect, I, you know, I'm not super proud of my master's thesis. Um, 
because I hadn't been to law school yet, I missed some of the finer points of the law, but my conclusion was correct. Uh, and that is, you know, a regulatory taking, you know, should be treated like a physical taking uh, according to Austrian precepts and just good common sense. Because when you regulate away someone's right to do physical things with their property, it's in essence the same as a physical invasion. So uh, I guess I want to ask you a little bit about uh, about Murray and Hans uh, when they were helping you and just kind of, can you explain a little bit about some of the guidance they gave you when you were working on your master's thesis and, and what was it like working with them personally? Um, well, th th they were both at the line. I'm still close to Hans, even though he's back in Europe. I've seen him a number of times since you know, I graduated. I guess I finished the master's in 93. So I hate to even think about how many years ago that was. Um, they were very good. Uh, you know, they, you know, I, I sometimes joke that, you know, M Murray was a very good um, theoretician, but he might not have been a very good legal practitioner. And I, I told a story a few months ago at the Mises, uh, at a Mises event where one of my jobs while I was in grad school, because I sort of worked my way through this stuff, is um, was working with a guy who, who was, who was uh, under contract to, to move people out of mobile home parks as the casinos expanded in the Las Vegas area. So in other words, the casinos would decide they want to expand or build a new property. And the property they wanted to build on was occupied by um, mobile home parks. There was a law in Nevada, and I presume there still is, that says you can't just you can't just buy the lot and ask people to leave, even if they're on a month-to-month -month rent. You have to go through all of these steps, which are very time-consuming to um, to get the people out of the park. So, the guy I worked for was hired by the casinos to try and create incentives where people would want, would in a sense, voluntarily leave the mobile home parks. And so, that was our, that was my job was to go in and work with these people and try and convince them that. You know, we would, you know, there was a big incentive for the casinos to get them out fast and they would, you know, they would pay us to do that. And so when I explained this whole legal situation to Murray, he, he said he, he, he couldn't believe that all these steps were required to get these people out. And his exact phrase was something like, they're mobile homes, they're by definition mobile, just move them out. So this was, this was Murray's legal practitioner uh, insight, but his, you know, his theoretical insights into law were, we're very keen uh, in Hans, of course, very good as well. Very easy to work with. Um, you know, I had a pretty good sense of what I wanted to do with the thesis. So it all went fairly smoothly. Luckily there was, you know, there were outside people who were sympathetic to the Austrian school uh, to add, you know, cause we had to have someone outside the department. And then there was, you know, another pre-marked person or two in the, in the economics department. So that all went pretty smoothly. Can you talk about a little bit about your your experience in law school? How did that go for you, and uh, what kind of advice, uh, what kind of things did you learn in law school that you might uh, advice you might give to younger libertarians who are considering uh, law school or becoming lawyers? Oh, don't do it! No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it, it it served me really well. Um, I my choices were kind of limited for economic reasons, and I knew that I wanted to. To practice public interest law when I got out, I know there's there's uh, there are now there weren't at the time there are loan forgiveness programs for people who spend you know x amount of time in public interest law. Uh, I, I guess you know I went to you know, I guess not a top tier school, um, but it served me well because as I mentioned before the tuition was. Was, was reasonable and you could become an in-state tuition student, you know, fairly quickly and easily. Uh, you know, I found, I found good instructors. Um, I, 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 I concentrated on, because I think it's so important, I concentrated on anything economics related. That was one of my, one of the things I did when choosing classes after the first year of, of mandatory classes. Uh, I also tried to choose good instructors, even if what, you know, what they were teaching wasn't exactly what I wanted to take, because I want to get as much out of it as I could. But I mean, I, I took antitrust law, I took labor law, um, 
I, you know, I did some independent uh, legal papers on on various things. But I guess my general is get into the best school you can that you can afford. Um, that's not going to saddle you with a ton of debt because um, if you want to work in public interest law, it's not necessarily going to make you the kind of money that you know some of the more prestigious firms will pay. Um, so, you know, I think there are probably good instructors in most schools, uh, but if you want to work in public interest law and you want to work in the liberty movement, you're not going to want to be saddled with really high debt because you're not going to get probably paid enough, especially at the outset, to, to do that. Uh, I want to ask you about, about your public interest work. Um, so I guess kind of first my question is, what drew you to that work, and why do you think that that work is uh, something important that is that's uh, worth getting into? Well, it's uh, I guess what drew me that was the whole reason I went to law school in the first place. You know, I as I, as I said, I when I went to my first Mises University in Stanford back in the late '80s, um, I I knew I wanted to be a lawyer even then, and even when I was in high school, my plan was to you know get a political science degree and and uh, I wound up with a social science degree, which had a lot of economics and political science in it. But my goal was to become an attorney and contribute in the, you know, in the liberty movement. And to me, that seemed like a good way to do it. Um, so, I mean, that was that was always my my plan was to do public interest litigation. My internship in law school. Um, between the first and second year, I went back to Vegas and I did economic consulting work with a guy that I knew from, from grad school. But between my second and third year, I interned at Mountain States Legal Foundation with the plan that I would go back there, you know, when I graduated. Um, but I guess, you know, part of my reason for expressing concern about, you know, borrowing too much money or, or having high debt, the, the, the salary at, uh, in the public interest job I was offered was so low, I wound up not doing that initially. Um, I worked a year. This, this I came out of law school at the time the Telecom Act of 96 passed. And this was to introduce competition into the local telephone market, which, you know, experienced some level of success. But I did that for a year. But th this was a time when Murray Rothbard had just passed away. And when I went to his memorial service in New York, uh, I ran into Ron Paul again for the first time since the 88 campaign, and he told me he was going to run for Congress then. So, you know, I talked to him about working for him once I got out of law school and assuming he got elected. And he said, well, the race is tight, so don't make any decisions yet. But if I get in, we'll talk then. So anyway, at some point he did get elected and I did graduate from law school. So, uh, uh, I, I guess it was during, you know, during the time I did that one year of uh, telecom, com, you know, competition, trying to help introduce competition in the telecom market. But then I went to work for Ron on the Hill. And then I didn't actually start the public interest law work uh, at Mountain States Legal until 9-11 until happened. And I had turned in my end of the session notice to Ron. And then I, I, I went to work at Mountain States for for a number of years. Um, I think that's great work. I think it, you asked, you know, why does it need to be done? It needs to be done because government's very oppressive and, and uh, you know, people can't fight back without help. I mean, you're going against the biggest law firm in the world, the US Department of Justice and various state entities and, you know, the, uh, the little guy, uh, is hard pressed not to cave unless there's some, you know, donors behind him who are willing to help out. And that's what public interest law is. So I think that's why it's important. Well, before we ask any more legal questions and uh, before we ask you about your experience working with Ron Paul, I wanted to ask, uh, what was your Mises U experience like in 88 at Stanford? Because I imagine it's a lot different than, uh, you know, most of the listeners of this show who went to the one in Auburn, where it is now, like David and I did. Right. Um, well, it was smaller. Um, you know, there were a lot fewer Austrians in those days. Um, so, but, I mean, it was Murray. It was, 
I went to a couple of them uh, early on. It was, you know, it was it was Pat, who we all know and love, uh, Pat Barnett here from the Institute. But it was Murray, it was Lou, it was Hans, um, it was Walter Block. I mean, these are people I remember. Um, at some point, uh, Yuri Maltsev joined the group, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, we also had at UNLV, uh, we also did a Mises weekend because Hans and Murray were both there and the Institute was in Burlingame at the time in Southern Cal, I'm sorry, Northern Cal. So we did a long weekend there and so, some of that stuff runs together. Uh, I definitely know Yuri was at the, the Mises weekends in Vegas, um, but I think it was a smaller group. There were fewer, fewer instructors to choose from. They were older. Uh, we have a lot more younger you know, PhDs now, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, other than that, it wasn't much different. I mean, you hear a lot of the same, a lot of the same stuff, but just from fewer people and with fewer people in attendance. It was also less humid. Oh, less humid. <laughs> yeah, it's very humid often, uh, especially when you have long hair. But um, <laughs> I got to ask, um, what was it like working for Ron Paul? And uh, I, I know you mentioned you only worked until uh, 2001, but uh, what was that experience like? And uh, you got any cool stories about that? Well, you say you say it was only until 2001. You have to realize for someone in the liberty movement to stick it out in, Ken, in uh, Washington, D.C. for almost five years, that is an accomplishment in and of itself. So um, the fact that it only lasted until 2001. You know, the thing is, when Ron hired me for that job, I said, well, how long did you think you were going to be here? He said, well, maybe two terms. So that was 97 to 2001. Um, I lasted until the end of 2001, so almost almost five years. Um, things I remember about D.C. are, uh, you know, my, no one will look you in the eye because I think most people know they're doing bad things. And they know that you know they're doing bad things, especially if you're in the Ron Paul office. So um, it was a very, I don't know, uh, very sort of bleak, bleak place. Except we, you know, we loved being in the office. We loved our work, but we didn't really love being surrounded by most of the people that that we were surrounded by. Um, and of course, I was deputy chief of staff and legislative director, so I reviewed all the legislation that was, you know, coming to the floor and I'd help I had good uh, I had good legislative assistance to, to help me um, but I guess one of my favorite stories is you know lobbyists would come you know streaming in usually with appointments to talk to the staff about you know trying to get Ron to vote for this or that and you know um, the first question we would ask most of them was well you know, someone would present their case for why we needed to vote for something really bad. Um, and we would say, well, that's all very interesting. But the first thing my boss is going to ask me is where in Article 1, Section 8, the Enumerated Powers Clause, is this authorized? Because he's going to ask that. And I, I got to know what to tell him. And of course, it was always deer in the headlights. You know, these people would traipse around to 430 some other house offices and never hear that. And then so when they would get that from us, and, and of course, we didn't have near as many lobbyists as many people did, because people who knew Ron knew how he was going to vote, and it didn't matter, you know, what they gave or, you know, what they said. But there were always some who, you know, sort of didn't get it or felt obligated to, to make an appointment. I, I guess my other favorite story along those lines is um, this was... This was in the days, and you probably won't remember this because you were younger, when the screensaver used to be a scrolling marquee message that went across the screen, sort of like, you know, what you'd see at an old movie theater or something. And I, when they would come, I always set myself up in a way that my monitor was behind me, but facing the lobbyist who would sit at my desk. And the screensaver, after so many minutes of the lobbyist, uh, you know, arguing for something foolish, uh, would kick in in the uh the message i had scrolling across the screen is let me see if i can get this right uh it was a quote from uh representative uh, barbara conable from california and it said hell hath no fury like a vested interest masquerading as a moral principle 
And so it was a it was a great quote. I loved it. And of course, so a couple minutes into every lobbyist visit, they would see that just constantly scrolling across the screen. So that's something else I remember well about my time working on the Hill. But Ron was great to work for. Um, you know, it was it was actually uh, hard for me to leave. Um, but you know, I had this law degree, and I I was getting offers from mountain states, and I could now afford to take, you know, what they were offering to pay, and I wanted to get back to Colorado. I don't think anybody blamed me for wanting to get out of D.C. after five years, um, but no, he was great to work for, and politically astute, but very principled. And you know, having seen him again last weekend, nothing's really changed as far as I can tell. Great guy. Yeah, of course. Uh, I want to bring it back a little bit to um, to your public interest work and just ask you, what were some of the the biggest case wins that you were able to uh, that you were able to get in your time working? Well, as you'll come to learn, there are very few total victories. Uh, I think that's a line from Inherit the Wind, actually one of my favorite movies. Uh, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know there are very there are very few, if any, total victories. Um, well, I did a case in Colorado, which should have been done by the attorney general. This, I don't know that this is particularly interesting as far as the facts, but this was a case where the federal government decided that uh, county commissioners in Alamosa, Colorado had to be uh, elected, let's see, not at large, but by districts. The state law in Colorado specified that you know, counties below a certain size had to elect their, their county commissioners um, at large. And so the federal government sued the county of Alamosa, uh, Colorado, and said, no, you need to change. In, con in contradiction of your own state constitution, you have to change the way you elect your county commissioners because there's a, you know, there's a Hispanic contingency down there that will not get representation if we don't gerrymander a district just for them and do uh, by district elections instead of at large elections. So that was an interesting case because normally the attorney general for the state would defend the county. Uh, but this was, uh, this was a Hispanic attorney general who later went on to become interior secretary who uh, uh, Ken Salazar, who refused as the attorney general to do his job. So it's, it's a rare case where a public interest law will represent a government. But here's a case where we represented a local government against the feds. And that's a case we eventually won. And we did it by proving, uh, well, I mean, their argument really was under the, uh, under the Jingles case, case law that um, their interest, the Hispanic interest could not possibly be represented under an at-large voting system. And, and we, uh, we took that on and what we demonstrated through, you know, forensic statistical evidence is that there were no Hispanic issues. I mean, the Hispanics had the same issues as the, uh, as the Anglos, as they were called at, at the time in the, the district. And uh, we wound up prevailing in, in that case, although the court refused to publish the decision. Um, another case I did while at Mountain States was a case which got finished 14 years after I started it, long after I got on to to do other things. Uh, and this was a this was a um, the rail a rails the trails case. I don't know if you've read any of those. Uh, that's a case where the the government by legislative fiat decided that uh, railroad easements would become uh, government trails, government bike trails or hiking trails, irrespective of the fact that the easements themselves guaranteed that when they quit being used as a railroad uh, that they would revert to the property owner. So we had a property owner in Wyoming uh, named Marvin Brandt who had such a property, the government claimed that when the railroad quit using it, it was the government's, which you know we would regard as a taking. They didn't want to pay for it. So we did an inverse condemnation act, which went all the way to the Supreme Court. And some 14 years after I filed that case, you know, we ultimately won, but you know, I can't take a lot of credit for it because a lot of it, you know, a lot of it happened after I left Mountain States because by then I'd gone to work on, on, uh, on something else. If we move ahead to uh, some cases in, in Nevada that I worked on um, when I was running a public interest litigation center, 
one of the state-based ones like, you know, uh, like Goldwater or, uh, I mean, most states now have a state-based uh, public interest litigation center. But I won some, I won some good uh, Public Records Act cases there that netted some money for the, for the, the organization because if the government failed to comply, there would be attorney's fees and those would go to, you know, the organization that did the litigation. So there was that. Um, another case which I was working on, which is really interesting uh, there, uh, which I left when the organization got defunded, uh, was a separation of powers clause. There's a provision in most state constitutions that say you can't uh, work in both the executive branch and the legislative, or you can't work in more than one branch at the same time. I mean, they're all worded a little bit differently. Um, so we ran into a trial court judge that didn't seem to understand that in order to challenge one constitutional violation, you didn't have to challenge all of them. So uh, we were on appeal to that when the litigation center closed. But interestingly enough, the organization has con continued to take that issue on through private attorneys and the same arguments are being made. But this, this is really recent news. Uh, a convicted, uh, the, the, the way someone finally won this issue, at least at the trial court, and I'm sure it'll go to the Nevada Supreme Court, uh, the way this finally got dealt with is someone who was convicted of a crime was convicted by a prosecutor who not only was a prosecutor, but was also a legislator in the legislative branch. And the, the trial court judge overturned this person's conviction because the prosecutor had no right to be a prosecutor when he was also serving in the legislative branch. So interesting twist on the, uh, the way to get to that separation of powers issue, but this is a dangerous thing. I mean, this goes way back to the concepts of federalism is, separation of powers and keeping government from becoming tyrannical as you want different people in each of those branches, each guarding their own turf. But a, a good number of states over the years have sort of turned a blind eye to that very important protection. But I guess it takes a convicted murderer, rapist, or whatever it was to challenge the conviction on separation of powers grounds to win that, win that issue. But I'm excited that, I'm excited that not that whoever this is had their conviction overturned, but, uh, and I don't even know who it was or what it was for. I haven't gotten the details from, from my sources yet, but uh, I'm excited that the court finally recognized there's a problem with having someone write the law and the same person that writes it, you know, also enforcing it. So that, that, that's an encouraging bit of news on, on, a, on a case issue that I, I worked on. I, you know, I could talk all day about these kind of cases. So, Maybe it's time for me to stop unless you want me to talk about more of them. Well, I'm sure we'll want you to talk about more in a minute when he gets real big brain with all the legal stuff. But uh, I was interested, and I uh, think Dave is also interested as well as all of our listeners. Um, you are the provost for the Mises U, or Mises, what was it? I'm sorry. The Master's well, yeah, the Mises. Yeah, I, I can. Exp I, th I think I know where you're going with the question. So let me yeah. answer it. If I answer something you weren't going to ask, you can just tell me. Um, the, you know, the Mises Institute has existed for almost 40 years, and they've. It's a it's a nonprofit organization that has been promoting um, study in the in, in sound economics for most of that time, with helping students, uh, conducting seminars. Uh, providing summer fellowships for PhD students, graduate students. Uh, and they decided, you know, with the advent of this new thing called the internet and online education, that a good way to help students would be to create our own 100% Austrian school uh, graduate degree program. And having done the closest thing there is to that, I guess, uh, it, at uh, UNLV and having you know, some background in proprietary schools, which I don't even know if they knew about, uh, you know, one of my earlier jobs before anything we've talked about, uh, along with, you know, complying with state regulations, they hired me to create and direct this program and uh, gave me the title of provost. So I came down here almost a year ago to the day and, uh, and went to work on that. We started our first cohort of graduate students in August. We'll start our next cohort in January. It's a program that doesn't accept any financial aid, either the institute or the students in it. 
but we have a lot of private donors who are donating money to make the thing work so students can you know basically get a master's degree for less than five thousand dollars and you know come out of this without any heavy debt and go on to use the knowledge that they that they gleaned from the program and their various jobs we've had you know people who want to pursue phds people in others master's programs who have applied to transfer out of them into ours financial management policy wonks attorneys uh, journalists all applying for this program to get the knowledge that will make them better at all the things that they're trying to do in the in the liberty movement i'd like to shift now to to talk a little bit more about some strictly legal things uh and and i guess the first thing i want to talk to you about talk to you about is a a topic that I believe you wrote a paper about, and that's kind of how in United States courts and jurisprudence there's a separation between economic rights and or economic liberties and fundamental liberties. And this ties into the idea of substantive due process and the Lochner case. So um, I'm hoping that, can you give our listeners kind of a, a broad overview of, of this issue and kind of, uh, uh, kind of some of the history and the legal history behind it? Yeah, it's been a while since I delved deeply into the history, but I, I can talk a little bit about the law review article I published um, when I was, you know, coming out of law school. I, it was it's probably a copy of it on my shelf. It's called Procrustean Jurisprudence, and Procrustes was someone who uh, tried to fit things into artificial categories, uh, which is where I got the name Procrustes Bed. Uh, in mythology, is a guy who had a certain size bed, and if you were too if you were too long for it, he would chop off your legs, and if you were too short for it, he would stretch you out to make you fit, you know, artificially fit the bed, uh, which con conjures up some, you know, sort of horrific images, none of which made it into the actual publication, but I had copies of them to to use, uh, just cartoons, not yeah. <laughs> Real people, um, but but in any event, yeah, I, I I I took the Austrian school. I'm much prouder of this publication than my master's thesis because by then I'd been through the graduate program in econ and most of the way through through law school, at least the, the relevant courses. And and uh, basically, what I did is I said the Austrian school explains why you can't artificially separate personal liberties from economic liberties and give them different levels of scrutiny. Uh, when a legislature when a legislature passes a law that impacts so-called economic liberties, um, and the court reviews them as as to their constitutionality, they give them much lighter scrutiny as to whether the legislature did something constitutional or unconstitutional. Where if a legislature passes something that deprives someone of a so-called fundamental liberty, um, then more scrutiny is is given to what the legislature did. There's also an intermediate intermediate scrutiny for certain other things, but for the purpose of this discussion, it's probably enough to talk about rational basis review and strict scrutiny review. Rational basis is the review given to uh, econo so-called economic regulations, and it it just says that you know if the legislature could have any rational basis, whether they had a rational basis or not, if they, if the court can imagine any rational basis uh, by which the legislature came to the decision to pass some piece of legislation regula regulating economic liberty, that's good enough. Uh, for the so-called fundamental liberties, uh, if the legislature passes something, this the, the level of scrutiny is called strict scrutiny, and the court supposedly has to find a, you know, a narrowly tailored regulation to address a compelling government interest. So most economic regulations, if given strict scrutiny, would would be struck down. But under rational basis review, almost no economic liberty is, 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 is stricken that the legislature does. Um, so my Austrian approach was, um, a lot about means and ends and subjective utility and you know how can you know whether something is well you know if i use a rothbard example you know he said freedom of the press which is a so-called fundamental liberty uh, 
freedom of the press is meaningless without the property rights in paper and ink. And of course, now we might say a laptop and a server, uh, but that's the point. I mean, you can't artificially separate property rights, so-called economic liberties from fundamental liberties, because without rights to property, you can't exercise, you know, you can't exercise liberty. And up until, you know, the New Deal courts in the 30s, the Supreme Court pretty much treated regu regulation of economic liberties, you know, with the same strict scrutiny that they did fundamental liberties. But then during the New Deal era, uh, courts came up with this artificial separation to sort of advance FDR's, um, FDR's heavy regulation of so-called economic activity. But all activity is economic, right? We know this from human action that humans act to achieve ends and those ends are economic, but it's, it's hard to say that they're also not you know, fundamental. Right, right. So Lochner was the big uh, case before the New Deal where the courts were saying that uh, you know, under the Fourteenth Amendment, this this New York law that regulated hours of work in the in the bakery uh, couldn't pass couldn't pa pass scrutiny. Um, so, I'm, I've heard some interesting arguments from libertarians, as, uh, particularly Stephen Kinsella, um, that the entire idea of substantive due process kind of makes no sense. And I know that even Justice Clarence Thomas has said some things about this. Um, so it's kind of interesting because. Lochner is obviously, um, you know, taking a position in its in its final ruling that hey, you know, these economic liberties we shouldn't be able to regulate them. This isn't the role of government. But also, it's kind of doing so through this substantive due process idea, which you know some have criticized as not making really any sense. Um, so I was just wondering if you have any uh, have any thoughts about this kind of tension between like we like the outcome that Lochner had, but we might not like the theory that it was based on, namely substantive due process. So what do you think about substantive due process as a doctrine? And do you think it has any problems or do you think it's fundamentally correct? Well, you know, my, my recent encounter with that, I, you're asking probably a, a deeper question that I'm going to answer. Um, but, you know, I did a case, I did a case, which is still going on. Uh, I still get updates, even, even though I'm not, listed as an active attorney. I, I, did, I did a case in Nevada, which was actually factually really interesting. And I think I can talk about this in the context of, I think I can talk about this in the context of um, your, your question. I had a client who swam seven miles in open ocean to escape Castro's Cuba. Um, he did it because his mother was sick and the healthcare in Cuba is about like what we're going to experience soon, I guess. Um, depending on your depending on your outlook for you know how whether the medical care situation could get better or worse but anyway he, he escaped cuba came to the us he uh, was trying to raise money well money or he was trying to raise money to get his mother out of cuba basically because she needed medical care that she couldn't get there and he got involved in some illicit activities in vegas uh went to jail and this is going to be a long answer to your question, but I know we have time, so no, please, we, we love it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he, he went to jail, uh, did his time, got out. D during the time he was in jail, he became exposed to Christianity for the first time, which was not, you know, readily available to him in Castro's Cuba. Um, he got out, became a became a pastor, started a church, and with the help of his congreg congregants, he raised half a million dollars to buy a church camp in in an area in a like a little a little oasis outside of uh, vegas in the desert and an oasis through which a spring-fed desert a desert spring and stream had run since we know at least the late 1800s so um shortly after he bought the property the u.s fish and wildlife service which owned the refuge land around it dammed up the water and basically stole the water to which he believed he had a right and they did it in such a way by rerouting it to the high high elevation side of his property that every time it rained heavily uh the water would that was previously supposed to run through his property would run to the high elevation side and then suddenly break through its little banks and and, and flood his land flood his church camp out 
So um, this is a this was a case that involved a lot of constitutional law issues. One of which was free exercise. One of which was a taking. One of which was a tort. And and then uh, the other one is I I would say was a substantive due process claim because even the or a procedural due process claim one of the, one of the both uh, because the government didn't even follow its own rules when it did what it did and the government has tried to collapse the substantive due process claims into the takings claims which I think is a problem um, what you know what we experience is when we make the when we made both claims that they, 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 they took the water. And of course, by the time we got the water back, there would have been at least a temporary taking. But there was also a, a due process claim because um, they, did it in, they didn't even follow their own rules when they did it. Uh, and, there, and then again, there are certain things that the government can't do even if they follow their own procedure. So, you know, I'm not sure I completely agree. I mean, I'd, I'd be willing to listen to Kinsella's arguments more closely. Uh, I know him well. Uh, I don't know that we've ever talked about this specifically, but you know, there is, I know that the takings claims are not, the substantive due process claims are not, you know, subsumed in the takings claim because you don't want to have to make a takings claim if you can, in their case, if you can have the water put back, which the government had no right to take in the first place. Uh, it's 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 really only a takings. It should only elevate to a takings claim if they did everything they were supposed to do and just didn't pay you. So I don't, I don't know if that sheds any light on this issue. But the other problem with that case is uh, something that happened in the Brandt case that I talked about with the Rails to Trails Act is that if you have a substantive due process claim and a takings claim, those have to be brought in different courts. I went to the Supreme Court on this issue after losing a 2-1 decision at the Court of Claims on this uh, on this church camp case. And uh, the problem is, is that you can't pursue those claims concurrently, uh, even though the district court, which would address your substantive due process claims and your Federal Torts Claim Act claims, uh, the court of claims can't uh, can't address those. They can only address the takings claim. And if you wait until those are all resolved before you file your takings claim, your, the statute of limitations on your takings claim is probably going to expire. So that became another legal issue in that case, which is still unresolved. Uh, it did get resolved in the in the Marvin Brandt in the Brandt case on the Rails and Trails case, because during the time that during the time that the the, the case was between when it was decided at the trial court on the substantive due process claim and the time they filed the appeal, the, the attorneys at Mountain States filed the takings claim. So the takings claim was not filed while the substantive due process claim was already pending. Uh, but neither court can make the client whole in that case. And that's that's an issue that definitely needs to be dealt with. So I don't know, the, this is sort of my experience with the substantive due process versus, um, you know, takings, takings claims. So, you know, it's not a very clear answer, but I guess I haven't thought fully about, about the topic that you brought up. I've only seen what I've seen through the cases I've, I've litigated. Okay. So, uh, uh, we we know that um, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, gave the a dissent in the Lochner case, where he mentions uh, Herbert Spencer and you know the not having social statics or whatever be the you know economic theory in the law. So uh, you know we've taken on our show we've taken to calling Holmes the great villain, and I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on Holmes, his philosophy, and uh, kind of the importance uh, the importance of his place in. United States legal history, either for good or for bad. Yeah, I I mentioned Holmes. Uh, I mentioned Holmes in my my Procrustean jurisprudence law review article. Um, I like Mencken's take on Holmes. Um, in Mencken's Crestomathy, I'm pretty sure that's where I found it. Uh, Mencken does a good job of sort of explaining Holmes and it's tough to know. Mencken basically explained Holmes. I think, it, and he did it pretty well in simple terms. Holmes would sometimes appear to be 
a liberal judge and sometimes appear to be a conservative judge. And what it turns out as is that Holmes um, basically did what the legislature wanted. He gave great deference to the legislature. And so if the legislature did something conservative, Holmes would let that stand. If he did something liberal, if the legislature did something liberal, he would let that stand. So I guess my critique of Holmes uh, would always be that I see courts as the check on the tyranny of the majority. Uh, I think that's their proper role. Uh, so to the extent you're always going to defer to the legislature um, is not is, is not a good is not a good way to operate a judgeship. Yes, that's precisely the critique that we gave of him in our in our recent episode where it's just like uh, it's definitely a repudiation of the entire idea of national law and natural law and an entire repudiation of the idea of, like you said, the courts being a check on the legislatures, making sure that what they're doing is is actually well, first of all, making sure that what they're doing is actually constitutional, but secondly, making sure that what they say the purpose of this regulation is 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 actually going to achieve it, right? So, like with the rational basis review, which you've talked about, the courts yeah. can make up a a purpose or or something, right? They can just imagine some legitimate purpose for this for this legislation, and then they'll let it go through. And so, I think that your criticism is right on point. That's something we've been we've been talking about recently. Yeah, if you um, haven't read the Mencken piece on that, it's it's really good. Great. Yeah, I'll check it out for sure. Um, I'd like to shift uh, to talk a little bit more about common law and torts. Um, recently, we had Jeff Deist on the show, probably about a month ago or so, um, and we ta we had a good conversation with him about tort law and how it how it applies to big tech and everything that's kind of going on with that. And uh, Mr. Deist said that. Uh, he's kind of grappling with uh, the Rothbardian conception of torts, of you know, physical invasion of property, um, and and how he thinks that that might not be adequate to to handle some of these these problems with these big tech companies, with censoring people and and all the people who rely on the services that they provide and then are just cut off and their ability to engage with the world is is taken from them. So I'm just wondering, what are your kind of thoughts um, on the recent developments in, in this issue and, and uh, kind of how torts should apply to this to this big tech problem that, that we face? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I think this is a, I think this is a tough issue, and I, I guess I'm probably grappling with that as is uh, Mr. Deist, um, you know, you know, I start with the initial notions that, um, you know, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not completely Rothbardian on this because I've, I've thought of, I've thought of issues, um, you know, I mean, fraud may, well, first of all, I mean, the, 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 uh, if we're talking about the, uh, the social, the social um, networks, um, they should definitely honor the contract that they have with their users. Um, they shouldn't be given special privileges by government. Uh, my initial instinct, of course, is always as long as you have a contestable market, that's fine. But a contestable market can involve, I mean, if we go back to things like, you know, the cable monopolies or whatever, I mean, the only real monopolies in, in our view would be, you know, those that come with a grant of government privilege, right? Going all the way back to the common law in in England with playing card cases and things, you know, the, where the, the, the government gave someone a monopoly in producing playing cards. If I remember my, you know, some of my law school antitrust cases from way, way back. Uh, so, I mean, those things certainly shouldn't exist. Uh, but any of those sorts of privileges that give one company competitive advantage by government have to be have to be done away with. Will, will that solve all the problems? I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not eager to say we need the government to intervene, but I'm also eager to say that we need the government not to grant special privileges to the to the tech companies. Um, beyond that, you know, I, I don't know that I've I don't know that I've thought a whole lot about you know, about how to remedy that situation other than no government privileges and enforcement of contracts, and then the consumers basically have to opt for a company that's not going to censor them. I suppose um, if you know 
if such a company can exist. I have uh, one more big picture kind of legal question for you. Uh, we had a conversation in one of our earlier episodes um, with uh, Carr from Friends Against Government podcast. People, you can go check that one out. He was our first guest. And we had a, we had a brief conversation with him about kind of liberty versus property as kind of being the basis of what we believe in, right? So we obviously, we call ourselves libertarians, um, but Rothbard and Hoppe and other people focus really intensely on, on property, you know, ownership of self and ownership of external resources. And so I'm just kind of wondering, how do you kind of think about the, the basis of kind of what we believe in? Because because I sometimes think that the term libertarian might be a little bit misleading because of the focus on on property, right? And that's what kind of allows liberty. And even if you say, well, liberty is like self-ownership, but that still kind of implies some an underlying property ownership of yourself. Um, so I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on this, on whether or not maybe the, the libertarianism might be a misnomer or, or something? What, what do you kind of think about this? Well, I think, you know, I think Hoppe, Hoppe did a, did a, you know, a nice job of the argumentation ethic. Uh, I think, I think property is the, is the philosophical underpinning that justifies the libertarian ethic. I, I, I don't see these as at odds with one another. Um, I mean, in order to to make a decision about anything you have to have you have to assume a property right in yourself and you have to have a place on which to be i mean i think i think the i think property is at the core of the philosophical underpinnings justifications for liberty um, i don't know that it's much more complicated than that for me i mean if you have more specific questions like no, I think I agree with you because I always it always just comes back to me that you can do what you want with your property so that that liberty kind of like is based in that. So I think you're right. There's not too much of a of a discrepancy here between the two ideas, but it, it's just interesting. And, you know, because I think that at least from a strategic standpoint, it might be harder to sell property rather than liberty, especially for younger people who you know, want to be free and want to do what they want to do. But, you know, obviously you can't do things that hurt other people or aggress against them. So liberty is kind of bound by, you know, provable property rights. So I, it's just, just an interesting issue of how both theoretically we can think about it all, but also strategically how we can, how we can present these ideas to people in a fashion that makes them you know, amenable to the ideas. Well, everybody wants liberty for themselves, right? I mean, uh, maybe, maybe that's a, Maybe that's an overbroad generalization, but I, I think you know, I think I think it's generally true. Uh, and I think someone who, you know, so, someone who likes liberty but doesn't like property, um, you just sort of have to explain that liberty forms the forms the philosophical underpinnings why liberty is the only, you know, the only rational. Um, policy. Yeah. Stratty? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, you know, something about going, going on right now and uh, also a legal question. Well, what do you think of the election? And also, what do you think of Trump's lawsuit? And do you think it will get anywhere? Well, to me, you know, it seems like there's a lot of anomalies. Um, I know, I know, uh, I know Adam Laxalt fairly well. He actually weighed in on our our case uh, for the for the Cuban uh, pastor in in Nevada. They they filed when he was AG filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court on our behalf. Um, I I it, it seems like there's a lot of anomalies. I'm concerned that either way, um, I think people need to believe in the integrity of the. The election, so I I don't have a problem with the lawsuits. It it does seem, without knowing the facts to the casual observer, that uh, instead of the way it normally works, where the the 
the rural counties come in last and the urban counties come in first. It, it almost seems like here it was the other way around. It, it almost seems, um, you know, as an outside observer that we're waiting for, we're waiting for all the rural votes to come in and figure out what the, what the lead is. So we come up with additional votes uh, to, to make up the difference. I mean, it just, it just strikes me as, it strikes me as a problem. Uh, obviously, the mail mail ballots are more susceptible to fraud. Um, I mean, how you how you attack that stuff? I, I think the Pennsylvania case, from a legal standpoint, is fairly clear. I think that you know the Constitution provides that the legislatures decide how the electors are chosen, and if the executive branch in Pennsylvania or the judicial branch comes up with a different system than what the legislatures chose, all the votes that came in that wouldn't have come in had the, the legislature been ignored. Um, I, I think that's a fairly strong legal case now. How many of those votes are there? I don't know. I mean, that's a that's an evidentiary question, right? But I think um, if the Pennsylvania legislature decides that, they, that the law wasn't followed, you know, they could throw out the election and vote to just choose electors. Um, probably not quite the same in in like Nevada, where the legislature, I think, acted. You know, you've got a Democratic governor, Democratic assembly, and a Democratic Senate there, at least when the when the rules were changed. So uh, there, you've just got a case of you know votes coming in that are fraudulent as a result of mailing to people who were, you know on a not very clean voter registration list. So, I mean, all those cases are a little bit different, but I mean, I think they should be explored because I think I think people, I think citizens need to believe that the election is, is legitimate. Otherwise, you know, otherwise nobody's gonna believe in the system. And obviously we all have our feelings about democracy. Uh, Hoppe wrote a good book on it, God That Failed. Um, but it's it's a system we have at the moment so it should at least it should at least do what it purports to do right right do you think we're on the cusp of people um, losing faith in the system i mean obviously we're near it at least but i mean one side or the other i mean do, do you think this is a possibility that that neither side is going to really think that this is legitimate at all and even if the one side gets who they want now then the next time an election comes around, they're not going to trust it, right? So, do you think this is uh, this is possible? Well, I suppose if one side cheated, they know that the system isn't legitimate, right? Right. And uh, if the the winning side cheated, they'll know that it wasn't legitimate. If, on the other hand, uh, the side that didn't cheat thinks it's not legitimate, um, I mean, I think we've got I think we've got a problem because there's vastly different views of what the proper role of government is. Uh, the big divide is between, I mean, if you were to believe the vote, the big divide is between the urban, the urban centers and the, uh, and the rural centers. And, um, you know, when you look at the house, U.S. house races map, I mean, the map is almost entirely red by landmass. Um, and these people have a very different idea of proper role for government than, than the, than the blue areas. So, um, I don't know what the solution is. You can't really divide the country very easily by geography because, you know, in every urban area, it's planted in the middle of, you know, states can't secede because they have, you know, the, the, the lines that have to be drawn differently. I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, you've got half the people that think one thing and half the people that think another and they're divided um, you know, they're within every state, you know, with, with some exceptions, there's, there's no easy way to divide the, divide the interests and the more power is centralized, the more, the more problem it becomes because you can't just migrate. I mean, the problem is you can't vote with your feet to jurisdiction that thinks like you think, because, you know, unless the counties, I guess one, one, one good thing is, I mean, if more and more if power is more and more decentralized, uh, which is always good for you know limiting oppression, um, then I guess 
the lower, the closer the government gets to the, the people, the, the, the better it would work. And so, you know, there are counties that are very red and there are counties that are very blue, but, you know, the federal income tax, you know, the amendment that supposedly legitimized that uh, is a real problem because the people in the blue areas still want the people in the red areas to subsidize their bad, their bad ideas. So, uh, you know, I don't know. It's a bit of a mess. Yeah, it's it'll be very exciting to see where the where the chips fall um, come come January. All right, so we got one final we got one final question for you, and that uh, so uh, I was just wondering what are some uh, readings on libertarian legal theory that you would suggest to somebody who's just getting into this and you know not libertarianism in general or Austrian economics, but specifically on legal theory. What are some suggested readings that uh, you would that you would give? I, you know, I like Epstein a lot. I mean, it's, it's, he doesn't he doesn't describe himself as a libertarian or an anarcho-capitalist, but um, uh, you know, I he's he's one of the smartest he's one of the smartest guys I know, and and you know, I say that against the backdrop of Murray and Hans, who are also very smart guys. I mean, I you know, you talked about not knowing who I was for a while, and I don't think of myself as particularly smart, just smart enough to expose myself to people who, you know, I think are, you know, are, are smart and, and sound thinkers. And, you know, certainly Rothbard and Hoppe are amongst those people, but I like Epstein stuff. I mean, I, I'm still a member of the Federalist Society, uh, mostly because I like their, I like their um, teleforms. Um, I can sort of keep up with what's going on, and I always make a point to um, to listen to the ones where Epstein is one of the panelists. I, th I think uh, I think his stuff is his stuff is very good. I mean, there's a lot um, there's a lot in Murray's there's a lot in the Austrian literature that I think is 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 really good too. Uh, but as far as more specifically legal, um, Bernie Segan's book. Uh, is good uh, economic liberties and the judiciary. I'm just taking a look at my bookshelf at some of the stuff that some of the stuff that I have here. Um, uh, Bernie Segan's book. I don't. I know it's here. I don't see it. Uh, but he did a book, a good book on the the Constitution and it's, I think it's called Economic Liberties and the Constitution. That's a good book. Um, so, the, almost anything Epstein's done, and then. Uh, Bernie Segan, Economic Liberties and the Constitution are good. Um, uh, I like, uh, is administrative law unlawful? I think that's Hamburger did that. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's plenty to read. There's more to read than, unfortunately, I have time with, you know, my other duties. Um, but, uh, yeah, my, my other legal work, of course, was the... Uh, you know, chief legal counsel for the presidential campaign, you asked a little bit about, you know, cheating in campaigns. And, you know, we experienced rule changes in the middle of primaries and things, uh, which are very frustrating. So I know, yeah, I know there's some mischief that that exists in, in some of these. When, when a party does it, it's just a private issue. But when government does it, then, of course, it's a due process violation. But... Um, you know, I, I was heavily involved in that 08 president. In fact, I left public interest law to do that for for Ron. And uh, that was the 2008 presidential. And my job was to make sure we got on the ballot in all 50 states and, and keep a bunch of uh, libertarian, I don't know, zealots is probably an enthusiast. That's a better word. Uh, libertarian enthusiasts from breaking campaign finance laws, which are all very counterintuitive to libertarians. And we did manage to do that. We did manage to get the wrong to get Ron on the ballot in all 50 states, um, and and we did manage to, you know, escape any FEC. Well, we had one FEC complaint, but it was filed by uh, a disgruntled campaign worker that uh, had no no basis other than not being reimbursed for something that we couldn't legally reimburse him for. But um, so I mean, I've I've dabbled in presidential politics. Uh, from a legal standpoint. So I think that was a good question you asked earlier. And, and you know, it was frustrating when parties would change the rules and primaries or caucuses and, and things to exclude, um, to, you know, to give unfair advantage to, say, a McCain or something. But, um, 
you know, it's uh, that's the that's the problem with that's the problem with politics and democracy. You can't expect it to be pure. Yeah, absolutely. Stratty, anything else you'd like to ask or say before we uh, head out? I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. I uh, also didn't know too much about you until Dave told me about you, but uh been checking you out and I'm very interested. And I just want to, again, thank you for coming on here and thank you for your work in the Liberty Movement. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for your interest in my work. I, I appreciate it. It's, it's good seeing you guys again. And uh, I, I guess uh, call me anytime. Great, well, thank great. You. Hopefully, I'll see you again soon in person. If I end up getting back to Mises sometime soon, that would be very welcome. I'm guessing. Uh, I'm guessing your internship will give you a little time off to do that. Yeah, maybe. You choose the right one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Becker, for taking the time. This has been really, really great. And listeners, thank you for turning in. This has been the Law of Liberty podcast, and we will see you next time.